please open up your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter. We're going to read from, verse, from chapter 3, starting in verse 10. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's on the page, that, the page 1194. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Before we get started, I want to share with you just a couple of quick announcements. First, uh, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, will be a singing night with so many people traveling over the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we will not have our regularly scheduled Bible classes because we are unsure you know, if we can have all the teachers be here. But we'll have a singing night, and we encourage you to be here and be present for that. Uh, we, it will be a, an opportunity after a devotional for some of our young men to even engage in this leading singing, so we encourage you to prepare in advance for that. Uh, also, don't forget that, as already mentioned, I believe, this coming Sunday we'll start a new quarter, so be aware of the new class options and the brochures that are available on the table. And finally, I want you to notice if you've got your bulletin and you open up to what is normally the minister's article, uh, in there we have some information about our upcoming initiative for a month of prayer that will start on December 1st. It is our goal to engage as many of this congregation as we can in a month where we are focused on a single prayer every day of the month. And we will be, uh, the list of the prayers that we're going to be encouraging you to participate in are provided there in that article. And we will be uh, presenting those throughout the month via social media, email, and, and other uh, options such as that. So please be aware of that and consider uh, making that a, an intentional activity in your month for the month of December. With that being said, I, there, I heard a story about President Woodrow Wilson that back during his time in office, one of he received a call one night from a civil servant who was informing him that one of his appointees had just passed away. And the caller said, well, I'm sure we're all saddened by this news. I, I wanted to, to know if I could take his place. And President Wilson paused for a moment, and then he responded, well, it's all right with me if it's all right with the undertaker. You know, timing is everything. But sometimes our timing can be off because we grow impatient. And I believe that's at the heart of what Peter addresses in his second letter. As you know, we've been studying through 1 Peter for the past several weeks. Today we're going to conclude this study that we call Strange, but we're going to do so by looking at something in his second letter. Because in, in Peter's second letter, he circles back around to something that has been prevalent in the first letter. See, all throughout 1 Peter, Peter was focused on the end of time. You may recall that we began this series talking about the fact that we've been given a, a strange identity. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, you look at verse 11, and it's there that Peter refers to the followers of God as aliens and strangers in this world. Well, the Greek word that's translated strangers refers to one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. So by referring to Christians as aliens and strangers, Peter is implying that 
the followers of God are not citizens of this world, they're citizens of another world. And as Paul clearly states, if you go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, we're citizens of heaven. That's where 2 Peter comes into play. So we just read verses 10 through 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3, but if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, I want you to notice the framework of why Peter is addressing this. If you look at verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3, here's what Peter says. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, in both of these letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter here indicates that the objective of his letters, both of his letters, has been to encourage his readers to be faithful. And he does so by reminding them of their victorious future, the future that's been prophesied, and the future that's based on the commandments of the Lord. And we find out why he felt it necessary to do this in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3. It's in verses 3 and 4 where he indicates that at some point in the future, those who think we are strange are going to mock us, going to scoff at us by pointing to the fact that that for which we are waiting hasn't come to fruition yet. Think about it. Peter's been writing with this anticipation of the Lord's day of visitation, the day on which he would return. And it hadn't happened yet. And here we are reading these letters something like 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't returned. At some point, aren't we going to get impatient? At some point, aren't we going to be mocked for our waiting? And the overall message of this chapter is, be patient. The day is coming. And so today we want to talk about that day because our understanding of that day gives us a strange belief about the end. But first we need to clarify what day we're talking about. You see, if you look here in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter uses, uses four different day phrases. In verse 7, he refers to the day of judgment. In verse 10, he refers to the day of the Lord. In verse, thir- uh, in verse 12, I'm sorry, he calls it the day of God. And in verse 18, he refers to the day of eternity. And what Peter is conveying in his use of these four different terms is what Scripture teaches all throughout. And that is that all eschatological events, all end-time events, will unfold on one final day. Scripture uses different titles for that day, just like Peter did. The day is referred to throughout Scripture as the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of Christ, the day of judgment, the day of God's wrath, the day of redemption, the last day, and sometimes simply the day. And according to Scripture, here's what's going to happen on that day. First, it's going to be the day of Christ's return, because Peter himself here is referring to the day of Christ's return. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 with me. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Paul used the same terminology in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. He said that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And this statement appears immediately after his unique description of what Christ's return will entail. 
See, if you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll not only see that the day of the Lord will return, come like a thief in the night, but if you go back to chapter 4 and verses 16 through 17, here's what Paul says. He says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You see, when Peter referred to, to, to the, the, day, the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, he's using that same language that Paul used and that same description that Paul had here in 2 Thessalonians. And so Peter is referring to, to the exact same day that Paul described. The day when Christ's descent from heaven to gather his own is announced by the cry of an archangel's voice and the sound of a trumpet. And I find it so fascinating that the day of the Lord will be inaugurated with the sound of a trumpet blast. Because in the Old Testament, a trumpet blast was used to, by, was instructed by God to Moses to be used to sound the advance for the nation of Israel. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 10. This meant that the trumpet would be blown to announce to the nation that it's time to move to a new destination. And in similar fashion, a heavenly trumpet will sound, announcing to the world that Christ is coming to direct His followers to a new, permanent, eternal destination. The fact that Christ's return will be announced in this fashion indicates that the whole world will know about it. It will not be secretive. It will not go unnoticed by some. It will garner the attention of the whole world. Everyone will know when it happens. Peter says that day is coming. But Peter's not just referring to the return of Christ in this chapter. He's also referring to the day of judgment. Because in addition to this day of Christ's return, Peter is talking about a day of judgment. Look at verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter says that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Outside of this passage, the phrase the day of judgment appears seven more times in the New Testament. Jesus referred to the day of judgment in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 as the day on which people will give account for every careless word they speak. Paul referred to the day of judgment in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 as the day on which God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we know the day of judgment is the same day as Christ's second coming because Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 33 that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So not only is this the day on which Christ returns, but it's also the day on which God, through Christ, will judge our lives and decide our eternal future. That means that on this day, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And that means that on this day, God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
as Paul described in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. So throughout Scripture, this day is depicted as the day on which God will hear the case of our lives. He will pronounce the verdict, and He will either welcome us into heaven or condemn us to hell. And if you look again in 2 Peter, not only do you see that this is the day of Christ's return, and not only do you see that this is the day of destruction, but you also see that this is the day of destruction. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, here Peter's referring to the end of creation. Peter indicates that Christ's return on the day of the Lord will not only initiate the final judgment, but it will also initiate the complete destruction of the physical universe. John alluded to this fact, to the fact that the physical world will cease to exist in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 when he describes seeing a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So throughout the New Testament, Scripture clearly teaches that commensurate with Christ's return is the end of this world. This is why the day of the Lord is often referred to as the last day. In fact, Jesus referred to the last day multiple times in John chapter 6, a very important teaching of his. That's the bread of life discourse. For instance, in John chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus said, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In verse 44 of John 6, Jesus indicated that those who come to the Father will be raised up on the last day. In verse 54 of that same chapter, Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my, my blood will be, uh, has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The last day terminology is a reference to the fact that Time as we know it, in the confines of this physical universe, will cease to exist. And that's because on this day, creation which has been corrupted by sin will be destroyed. And Jesus, who left to prepare a place for us, is returning to escort us to that, escort those who are saved to that new heaven and new earth. So we're talking about a day when Christ returns. We're talking about a day on which judgment will take place. We're talking about a day on which the earth will be destroyed. And we're talking about a day that is unknown. See, Peter's referring to an unknown day as well. If you look again at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In so doing, Peter indicated that the day on which Christ returns, the day on which judgment will be meted out, and the day on which creation will be destroyed is an unknown and unexpected day. Here Peter is sharing information about that day that Jesus gave him. Back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, as, as Jesus and his disciples exited the temple, he pointed to that physical structure, and he said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now they kept going outside the city, and when they arrived at the Mount of Olives, the disciples had some follow-up questions because Jesus had just predicted the demise of the, the holy temple. And they approached Jesus, and they asked him two different questions that, that often get assumed to be or confused to be one question. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, you see the disciples ask these questions. First, they asked about the destruction of the temple. When will these things be that you just predicted, that you just prophesied? When will these things be? 
They wanted to know when the destruction of the temple that he prophesied in verse 1 would take place. And they wanted an answer to a second question. They asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Their second question is an eschatological question, meaning it was a question about the end of the world. And just because they grouped them together with the word and doesn't mean that it's one single question. See, Jesus spent verses 4 through 35 of Matthew 24 answering the question about the destruction of the temple. But then he transitioned to answer the question about his second coming and the end of the world in verse 36 of Matthew 24. That's evidenced by the word but. If you look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus clearly taught Peter and the other disciples that this day is an unknown day. And he also taught Peter that because this day is unknown, it's going to be unexpected. If you keep reading in Matthew chapter 24 and you get to verse 37 through 39, Jesus makes this comparison to the days of Noah. After speaking about the secrecy of the day, he he, he makes a comparison of his return to the flood. He said in verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of, of the Son of Man. Now, how will the two be similar? That's expounded upon in verses 38 and 39. Where Jesus says, In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What Jesus' point is, is that his return will be unexpected. Just as the flood was unexpected in the days of Noah, things will continue on as normal, then all of a sudden... He will return, and some people are going to be caught off guard. You see, this whole chapter, Peter's making reference to this day, the day Christ will return, the day when judgment will be meted out, the day when creation will be destroyed, the day that none of us can schedule for, the day that none of us are going to expect, that day. That's what he's focused upon. And we need to be reminded of that day quite continually because that's a big day. Think about all the preparation that goes into the day of your child's birth. Think about all of the preparation that goes into your wedding day. Think about all of the preparation that goes into your child's graduation day. Think about all the preparation we put into particular days, even just a vacation day. And yet none of those days carry the significance of this one, and that's what Peter is trying to focus his readers' attention on. And here's the thing, because we don't know when that day's coming, and it's going to be unexpected, it's important that we live in a state of preparation. See, while it's important to know what the Bible says about this day, it's more important that we live in readiness for this day. So after reminding us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and as a result the heavens will pass away and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed, Peter posed an an appropriate question here. Look at verse 11 and 12 of 2 Peter. 
He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? What kind of people should you be in the meantime? That's the question he's asking. What should we be doing while we await this day? And Peter answers his question, his own question, with four expectations. First and foremost, we should live with anticipation. See, Peter reminds us in verse 14 that the coming of the Lord is something that we should be waiting for, or as another translation says, looking forward to. You know, Christians in the first century, they assumed Jesus' return was imminent, that Jesus would return that day. They were constantly expecting Jesus to come back. And we've been kind of... uh, Um, I can't think of the word I want to use there, so we're going to skip that. That happens way too often with me, doesn't it? We've had 2,000 years of Jesus not coming back. And so we're less... We think it's less imminent than they did in the first century. But we can't change that mentality. We, We can't... Think differently than they did in the first century because Jesus' return could happen before I finish this sentence. We have no idea. We have to live with the same degree of anticipation that they lived with. That's what Peter's trying to convey to us. And, and if you go through Scripture, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 4 through 8, Peter, I mean, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and, and he writes of their, them eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ eagerly waiting in verse 4. I mean, verse 7, I'm sorry. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you look at verses 2 and 4 in particular, Paul writes about this tent we live in, this mortal, physical body, this temporary body that we live in. And he says that we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, longing to receive our eternal dwelling. We groan. We are longing for it. Here's the thing. When you look at the New Testament, there is this desire for Christ to return. There is this anticipation for Christ to return. Do you live with that anticipation? Do you long for him to come back? You see, we, we understand that kind of anticipation. We experience it as children when we go to bed on Christmas Eve, anxiously awaiting the, that, that first rays of daylight so we can get up and go open presents. We feel that type of anticipation before we embark on a vacation, that eagerness for that final workday to come to a close so that we can begin the process of relaxing. We experience it as we await the arrival of a child. We know that anticipation, but does it apply? Does it matter when it comes to, to our view of Christ's return? Or do we just go about our day as if nothing's different? Do we live each day kind of like, eh, nothing's going to happen today? Or do we live it like the first century Christians, anticipating that Christ could come back any minute, hoping that Christ would come back any minute, wanting Christ to come back at any minute? Let me ask you this. Right now, do you want Jesus to return before this service concludes? 
Think about that for a moment. Do you want Jesus to come back before this hour of worship is over? Because isn't that what we should want? It doesn't mean that's what we're going to get, but isn't that what we should desire and crave for Christ to return right now? Because we understand, as Paul did, that to depart and be with him is far better than continuing on in this life. Shouldn't that be our craving, our desire, our anticipation? And so Peter says that we should live with that longing. We should live with the anticipation of Christ's return. Peter also says we should seek reconciliation. Returning to 2 Peter, and you look at verse 14, Peter encourages his readers to be diligent, to be found by him without spot, without blemish, and at peace. The New King James says it this way, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That in peace status is referring to the relationship between us and God. Peter is basically instructing us to be at peace with God. Or another way to say that is to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation refers to a repaired relationship. And we understand reconciliation probably easiest when we think about reconciling our bank accounts. Now here's the thing. I tried to pull a picture today that would have a calculator and a checkbook. Do you realize that anybody under 20 would not know what that is? That dawned on me as I was working on this that, that, that people under 20 don't know what a checkbook is anymore because they don't get utilized like they do. And many of you are sitting out there and you remember the days of opening up to the, to the back of the checkbook and balancing your account out with a calculator and figuring the numbers up to make sure you still got the same amount of money that you've written the checks for and so on. But we reconcile a bank account to make it balanced, to make it even. See, here's the thing. When mankind sinned, when you and I sinned, what we did is we separated ourselves from God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. You remember how it concludes in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve got banished from the garden. The, the garden that they once were in with God who walked in the garden. And now they're kicked out. That's the separation idea. Isaiah would describe that separation in chapter 59, verse 2. He said, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. That's what sin does. It makes the relationship unreconciled, unbalanced. And Peter's saying that, hey, in preparation for this day when Christ returns, and for this day when judgment will come, and for this day when earth will be destroyed. What you need to do is you need to make sure that you are at peace with God. But you're not at peace with God because of something you do. You're actually at peace with God only because of something He did. You see, since the separation of mankind because of our sin, we've, we've been in need of a reconciled relationship with God. And Paul indicates that such a relationship was made available through Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he wrote, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 of Romans 5, he says, Because while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. See, to not be at peace with God is to be His enemy. Which according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 is, one status when he or she is still lost in sin, still subject to God's wrath, and still qualitatively 
unsaved. So in answer to his own question about what sort of people we ought to be, Peter indicated that we should be diligent to be found by him in peace. And the only way to be at peace with God is to have our sins washed away by his grace in the waters of baptism, which Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 is now saves you. So here's the next question for you. Right now, at this very moment, are you at peace with God? Or are you an enemy of God? Because those seem to be the two categories. At peace or at war. We should seek reconciliation. The third thing Peter says that we ought to be doing right now in preparation for that day is that we should be watchful. As Peter continues answering his own question of what sort of people ought you to be, he warned his readers of the possibility of apostasy and told them to take care, in verse 14, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless... I'm sorry, it's verse 17. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Or as another translation says, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. See, there's an off-ignored reality in Peter's words, and the reality is that one can lose his or her, her salvation after initially receiving it. We talk about reconciliation. We're talking about the repaired relationship. We're talking about receiving salvation, but you can lose it. And that's why Peter warned his readers to beware or to be watchful in regards to their salvation. Because here's the thing, a lack of watchfulness could be catastrophic. There was a Soviet lieutenant in 1983 who saved the world, but most people don't know about it. On September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel of the Soviet Air Defense, was on duty, the commanding officer on duty to be exact. Now his job was this, he observed the satellite early warning system for the Soviet Union. And he was to notify his superiors of any impending nuclear missile attack against the Soviet Union, particularly from the United States. And shortly after midnight, the bunker's computers reported that one intercon intercontinental ballistic missile was headed toward the Soviet Union. And then four more. And they were coming from the United States. But Petrov didn't sound the alert. He was watchful. He analyzed the data. He analyzed all the other information. He knew that a U.S. strike would not be with five missiles. It would be with every missile we had. He knew it was illogical to start with so few because it would give them opportunity to counterattack. He also knew that the message, the alert, passed through 30 layers of verification way too quickly to be valid. And he also knew that the ground radars had failed to pick up corroborating evidence of a missile attack. And so instead of alerting his commanding officers, or his superiors, I should say, and letting them sound the alarm to strike against the U.S., he ignored the data as an error of reporting. And he was right. 
because he was watchful, because he was sober-minded, as Peter talks about in dealing with the devil and dealing with our adversary, because he was sober-minded and watchful, and he, and, and he took all the evidence together, and, and, he was, uh, and, and he was prepared for how to handle that information. He prevented a catastrophe. See, being watchful is essential. Being alert is essential. Because if you're not, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and you won't be ready. So right now, not only do I ask, are you anticipating Christ's return? Are you wanting Christ's return? But are you ready for it? If Christ were to return right now, are you prepared to answer on that day of judgment? Are you prepared to face your Savior right now? If not, what has to change for you to be ready? How do you need to change to be more watchful going forth? And one final thing Peter mentions here as he gives instructions on what we should be doing in the meantime. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 18, he, said, he advises his readers to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he extended the expectation of maturation. He's instructing us to grow up, to satiate our spiritual diet with meat, not milk. He's instructing us to prevent stagnation, to maintain our spiritual fire, and to never become lukewarm. He's instructing us to avoid complacency, to not become lazy in spiritual matters, to continue deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ. Peter's advice coincides with Christ's warning to the church in Ephesus, where in Revelation chapter 3 he said, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And Jesus followed that observation of the Laodicean church's condition with the instruction to be zealous and repent. The word zealous indicates a continuance of passion and commitment, and such continuance necessitates growth because if you're not moving, then you're stagnant. And who wants to drink stagnant water? The fact that Jesus demanded repentance is an indication of, that the church in Laodicea, that their stagnation was sinful. What I want to ask you right now is, are you growing? Spiritually, are you growing? Have you matured since last year? As we wind down 2019, have you grown spiritually from where it started? Are you stranger now than you were on January 1st? You see, Peter recognizes that the end is near, that timing is everything. And he's trying to get Christians to recognize that the time is at hand. And he's trying to encourage us to live in a constant state of preparation for that day. Are you ready? If not, what do you need to do to get ready? If you don't want to leave here concerned about that day, then what do you need to do right now?
while together we stand and sing.